You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 17th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Republican Party prepared to usher one of their own towards the exit. The country which wants to be West Africa's Silicon Valley, or possibly its Silicon Islands, and the platypus. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers, whose claims that they had anything better to do were least convincing, are Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Tom Edwards and Steph Chungu. They will discuss regional accents and the platypus, we'll hear from the Lisbon Web Summit, and we'll have live music from the very great Kristen Hirsch. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and we will start in the United States with the startling revelation that the Republican Party does actually have some standards, despite the mountainous evidence to the contrary accrued in recent years. The House Ethics Chairman Michael Guest, a Republican representing Mississippi's 3rd District, has introduced a resolution to expel his fellow GOP Congressman George Santos of the New York 3rd. Santos has been damned by an Ethics Committee report chronicling his chronic fabulizing. Revel in the bathos of the report's finding, at no point does Representative Santos appear to have owned a Maserati, despite telling campaign staff otherwise. Well, I'm joined with more by Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris Chermack. Um, Chris, the detail in this report is indeed delicious, and I commend it to our listeners, but nobody's surprised by any of this, really, are they? No, frankly, Andrew, nobody's surprised by by any of this. I mean, already before this, George Santos faced federal indictments, 23 criminal charges. There was such a mound of different types of evidence against him. But I think uh, to the point you kind of made in the introduction about Republicans having standards, I think what is interesting about this is the, the this report, if you will, was business as usual for once in in the house of representatives you know there are allegations against a uh, against a congressman the house ethics committee goes through a process in order to file a report that's sort of a damning report that basically lays out all of the findings against that congressman and then they move to expel that congressman because he has not chosen to resign himself that's in a way how things should go. So at least in this one case, in a very broken institution, frankly, this is one case where we're just kind of seeing the process play out as it should. But is it clear, though, why this somewhat pathetic and absurd figure of Congressman Santos represents a threshold of unacceptability when, to pick two of many potential examples, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene don't? <laughs> That's a good question. I think... Well, there's a couple of ways you could answer that, frankly, uh, Andrew. One is that if you just look at the litany of individual allegations against George Santos, the sort of corruption, all the ways that he used campaign funds, they're just different in scale, in scope. But at the same time, I think to your point about taking other examples, 
I think what's also important in that sense, we also shouldn't raise this too highly to say Republicans have standards. And I think what's interesting about it is George Santos, just from his policy perspective, from his outspokenness, from what he uh, you know, from what he represents, he doesn't really have a constituency. And I think it's important to make that case too. This is why, if you will, politically, George Santos is expendable in a way that Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, is not. She has a constituency behind her. She has an, a, you know, an, an angry constituency of Republican voters, of Trump supporters behind her. So if you imagine her having all of these allegations against her, she still would maybe find an easier way to paint this as a witch hunt against her and Democrats, you know, and, and even, you know, Republicans in name only, as they always say, rhinos, you know, try, trying to paint her and, and sort of a witch hunt and all of that, all that kind of stuff. That did not work for George Santos because he doesn't really have that constituency. Even within New York, New York Republicans who arguably are accredited with, you know, giving Republicans the House of Representatives or maintaining their control of it in 2022, they are against George Santos. They want to see him out because they know how damaging his presence could be in the next election. I mean, what are some of the actually more serious charges the report accuses him of? I mean, I, I did cite one fairly frivolous one, but telling people you own a Maserati is merely the foible of the common or garden bullshitter. It's not something that you can be criminally actionable for. Oh, well, I mean, the allegations, it really is, again, it's it's this litany of allegations, but what they all essentially come down to is the fact that George Santos essentially used campaign funds for his own personal gain. It really does just kind of come down to that. And there are so many different examples of that, using the funds to pay down his own personal credit card bills to make luxury purchases, even purchases to an adult subscription site, OnlyFans. So there were such a litany of examples in this report of how he used money from his own campaign, from a uh, PAC, a political action committee that was set up in his name for his own personal gain. That's really what this comes down to. And you take all of those together, we can cite many different individual examples, but take them all together. It really is pretty incredible. Uh, please tell me that somebody in American media is pointing out that there is at least one other obvious high profile Republican who does have something of a record for fiddling campaign funds for his own personal gain. <laughs> well, there are so many. I don't know. Yes, but I, frankly, you can also, of course, look at the Democratic side with Bob Menendez, the senator, who's also facing his own kind of interesting fight when it comes to corruption. So, yes, I think that goes to the point that you were making earlier that, you know, on the one hand, we have standards in this individual case. On the other hand, we still have a very long way to go before we actually sort of reestablish standards for everybody um, in, in, in Congress. And I think there too, I think it's important to note that, you know, George Santos himself already once faced an expulsion vote. And at that point he was not expelled. And a large part of the reason was because other lawmakers were afraid that they might face the same kind of thing, same accusations, allegations, um, even without being convicted of a crime. So they wanted this process to go through. So, you know, they wanted to go through this process of having a report out there. Again, it's still, you know, it 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 still will be too much to say that the House has returned to its usual uh, decorum. There's still a lot of bad stuff that goes on in that place. 
um, with other members who are still going to get away with it. Uh, just finally, Chris, there will be books written about George Santos and a, I'm sure, at least nine-part Netflix series made and riotously entertaining they all will be as well. But have we yet figured out exactly where Santos thought he was going with this? The question of his motivations uh, is one that I still don't feel like has been entirely satisfactorily answered. Oh my, that's a, that's a good question, Andrew. I don't know if anyone really knows the answer to that entirely. Maybe maybe it was simply a case of, you know, given the atmosphere that we are currently in, he did think that he would be able to get away with it because he looked at others, uh, whether it's in the House or, frankly, presidential candidates as well, who are getting away with a lot of things and a lot of criminal indictments that are still not denting their popularity. So maybe there was simply a motivation there that he thought he would be able to get away with all of this and that there would be no consequences. He is the one, uh, sadly, in a way, exception that proves the rule that there can be consequences for your actions. Chris Chermack in Washington, D.C., thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. I am joined now in the studio by Monocle's own Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Um, Fernando, before we move on to the reason (laughs) that you are here, and it's staring at me from the table, um, there is actually a Brazil angle to the George Santos saga, and the Brazilian media, I assume, is having a goodly deal of fun with this. Absolutely. Uh, Of course, there's a... I mean, he's massively connected to Brazil. He's the son of two Brazilian nationals. Well, so he tells yeah, us. Yeah, well, so he can tell <laughs> yeah. us. Well, but, but apparently he did live in Brazil for a period as well. And it's interesting that in this very kind of tumultuous week for George Santos, the Brazilian press caught up with another story. There's a bunch of Bolsonaro supporters in Washington this week, in fact, and they've met with George Santos. And one of those supporters is Eduardo Bolsonaro. Of course, the son, uh, <laughs> the older son uh, for Jair Bolsonaro. So that's the type of people that George Santos you know, hangs hangs out with. Well, let's move along from one bewildering and scarcely explicable creature to another, a representation of which you do have there on the table. Um, Fernando, what have you brought back from your recent visit to my homeland? I bought a platypus teddy. Uh, I do do want to stress to our listeners, (laughs) Fernando has not come back with a live platypus. That sort of thing is very much frowned upon by Australian authorities. And I have to say, actually, the the woman in the the check-in, she said, is there anything unusual in your bag? And then I said, well, I have a platypus. <laughs> and then I was like, a dead one? Oh, don't worry, it's a teddy bear. It, you know, I was a bit well, confused. It's not a teddy bear, it's a teddy platypus. It's a teddy platypus, exactly. Um, and, and why did you buy a teddy platypus, Fernando? Well, I've paid a visit to the Hillsville Sanctuary, uh, mm-hmm. where they have all the fabulous animals you have in Australia. And they have something that is called the platypus experience, where you can go inside a dark tank and actually feed uh, the platypus as well. And that's what I did. I fed live worms uh, to a platypus, which I believe her name was Benari. Uh, And that's quite a... a fine name for a platypus. Fine name. And she lives with her daughter in this kind of tank. The daughter's called Aluka. Uh, That's very rare. You you didn't buy a teddy worm as well? No. That that one I've skipped. And, And I think you as an Australian can tell me, I think most Australians actually haven't seen a platypus in real life. They're very elusive. They are exactly. Extremely elusive. I think I have seen one for real in the wild, Mm. but it was sort of a flapping of what could have been a platypus tail in a billabong on a farm which was once owned by my uncle. Um, 
I can't think what else it could really have been. I'm pretty sure it was, but wouldn't necessarily want to bet my house on it. No, it, it is very, very unusual to see them for real. And, you know, and that's what uh, I've discussed with Jessica Thomas. You, we're going to hear my interview with her in a bit. Uh, I mean, there's not much information about the platypus. People don't know how many platypus are there in Australia. Mm-hmm. Of course, after the fires, you know, they don't know exactly how much damage their habitat. So, you know, that's why the research she does is so uh, important as well. And it's a good excuse as well to, and, to cuddle uh, a platypus in a way. And as she may or may not have told you, when the first platypus specimens were brought back from Australia to the United Kingdom, uh, people didn't believe it. They were assumed to be a hoax. People went, come on, you're not fooling anybody. You've sewn a duck's beak onto an otter and you're trying to pass that off as a real thing. And, and some, some poor, uh, you know, explorer of the time was frantically waving this taxidermized item around saying, no, this is not like one of those things where you have deer horns on a rabbit. This is an actual thing. They have those. And don't start me on the enormous hopping rats with a spare one in their pockets. Um, they, they are a remarkable creature. And before we play your thing, Fernando, I, I do want you to just explain a bit about, because I know this was something you were excited about Very. before you went to Australia. So for you, what is the fascination with that thing there? The exoticism. So from a young age in Brazil, you know, I've, I've learned about the ornithorhynchus, as we called the platypus. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I, I, I like that. I think they're beautiful animals and I like that they're a bit different uh, from anyone else. And just as a little spoiler for the interview, I think people should really stay here and listen to the full on because you're going to learn what a platypus sound like. It's a very strange sound. And also oh, the collective for platypus. We've discussed this <laughs> months ago. So Jessica has the answer for that. Well, uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, our freshly inaugurated monotreme desk chief. Uh, this is your interview with Dr. Jessica Thomas, a platypus specialist at the Healesville Sanctuary. Jessica, I know you're a platypus expert, which is an amazing type of expertise to have. You've been working in Hillsville for 15 years. Tell us a bit more about the beginning. Did you always want to work here? How, how did it work out? I always wanted to work with animals. I've known that since I was a young child. And I completed a master's of reproductive biology at university. And after that, I was looking at what I might be qualified to do. And there were positions open for keepers. Um, Azuz Victoria and that was one part of my masters that I really enjoyed and that was actually looking after the animals on the ground. So I applied for a position here um, and I got it and I, I've worked with a, a couple of other species while I've been here but very early on I ended up on the platypus section and I met my first one and he's still here today and I remember meeting him, his name's Milsom, he was just a young boy at the time, he's now a 21 year old male but I thought he was the best thing I had ever seen in my whole life. I was hooked. And after that, I never wanted to work with any other species. And even though it's been 15 years, they still challenge me. So there's still so much we don't know about them just as a species. But i am become very committed to finding out all the answers to all the questions that I have. Um, and the more I find out, the more questions that I have. <laughs> um, and the cycle continues. But I also love getting to know them as individuals, getting to know their personalities and their likes and dislikes. And it's really a side that I think most people don't ever get to see. 
you know, platypus, I think they mean so much to Australia. You know, I was telling you the story that mm. I grew up in Brazil, but I've heard so much about it. I think it's, there's a strong connection there, right? It is a special animal. It represents the country in a way, right? That's right. You can only find them in Australia. They're endemic here and they're a very old species as well. They're thought to be the very first species of mammal that ever existed, which I think really makes them quite unique. But they're certainly a species that's fascinated people from all over the world. And we certainly have visitors come from everywhere from England and Europe to Brazil, and they all come just to Australia to see a platypus because they've learned about them in school. And I think it's it's not just their weird biology, how they do everything differently, but I think it's also their, their looks that has really captured the hearts of people. <laughs> Let's talk about the experience itself. It was magical for me. I told you they, they have almost this mythical status for some people. Mm. And I mean, you have to explain to people as well, it looked like their habitat. You know, it was kind mm. of a, the, it was a bit darker. We had some kind of crayfish there in case they wanted to eat. Mm. Uh, tell us a bit more about this experience. So the platypus discovery experience is really designed to immerse you in the habitat of the platypus and give you an understanding about what the world is like for them. So I think that's a really large part of understanding them as a species, but also as individuals as well, is by actually being a platypus in that habitat sort of, well, sort of as best we can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they live in a place that we really don't understand as humans. You know, they feel the most comfortable swimming around in the water. They feel the most comfortable at night. It's really quite a cool environment. And as busy and active as they are, it's very quiet and still at mm. the same time. Um, and I think it's only when you sit in there and sort of just relax and take a moment and just sort of let the animals do what they want to do and be how they want to be that you get a really good understanding for, for who they are. Can you introduce the, the, the two platypus that I just met and what are their names? So we had Benari and Aluka, who are a mother and daughter pair. So Benari um, was bred at Taronga Zoo up in Sydney and she's lived here for most of her life. Since she was one year old, she's been here um, and she's just turned 21 years old. But until last year, she was actually our breeding female. So she lived outside in our, in our breeding area and she's actually been the best breeding mum that um, we've ever seen. Um, so she's successfully bred and raised 11 babies in her lifetime, um, which has been amazing. And she's actually the female that I studied through my PhD. So she's taught me the most about platypus reproduction, I guess, by just watching her behaviour. Um, and as she sort of hit 20, I thought, you know, she's not old, but um, she's getting older. And she'd already had a lot of babies. So I thought she's about to retire, as I think of it. So I moved her over um, inside facility so she can just enjoy her later years and, and do whatever it is that she likes to do. One of the things I like most about having her over there is um, for the 15 years that I've looked after her, she's always been an animal that lived outside and nocturnal, which means I only ever saw it on the video cameras that I reviewed every day. Or if I did have to interact with her, it was to weigh her maybe two or three times a year. And because she never saw me, she didn't like it. So she'd always growl at me and, and it's not the most positive relationship. But since she moved over um, and I see her every day now um, and it's in the water, um, she's really comfortable with me and she swims right over to me. Um, and even in her nest box, when I check her in the morning, she just sits there and looks at me and she has a little scratch 
on her bottom and she recognizes you it doesn't yeah, matter the does. clothes you're wearing as well no um and i have a really positive relationship with her um and she's so beautiful watching her swim around that i'm really enjoying seeing her up close after all these years as a platypus expert you need to answer what's the plural for platypus there is a lot of controversy about this yes there is What is incorrect is platypi. Mm, okay. That is incorrect. Good to know. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it is a common debate that comes through here all the time and I can hear people fighting about it um, mm. within their little family groups and stuff and always somebody says it's platypi. It is not. So that is for Latin words and platypus is not a Latin word. And it comes from a Greek origin. So technically platypodes is correct. So that's your trivia question. But platypuses is also accepted. So one of the early naturalists from the um, 1800s, early 1900s, he thought that platypodes sounded ridiculous. So he thought platypuses was more appropriate and because that's one of the earliest forms of literature on the species that that sort of stuck. But I'd like to see platypodes make a comeback. Lovely. We're going to use platypodes then. Yeah. Jessica, thank you so much. That was Dr. Jessica Thomas speaking to Monocle's Monotreme Desk Chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. For more information, in case you want to pay a visit to the Healesville Sanctuary, you can find it at zoo.org.au. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio, and this week the city of Lisbon has been playing host to the world's largest technology conference, Web Summit, bringing over 70,000 people to the Portuguese capital. One of them is Pedro Lopez, the Secretary of State for Digital Economy of Cape Verde. His country is on a mission to position itself as the tech islands of West Africa and as such their presence at the Web Summit is crucial to connect with international partners and talent. Monocle's senior foreign correspondent Carlotta Rebello caught up with Secretary Lopez and she started by asking him about Cape Verde being the African country with the largest delegation present at the event. Well, it's a commitment with the young people of Cabo Verde. Like we were saying, this is the biggest delegation of Africans in the Web Summit, one of the biggest tech events in the world. So we, Cabo Verde, we want to wave the flag of innovation and technology, and we want to support uh, young people uh, through our programs. That's why we are here, to promote a country that doesn't want to be just a spectator of this world that is changing so fast. We want to be actors, and size doesn't matter anymore. Digital gives us this opportunity, and uh, Well, we are just taking it. One of the interesting things about uh, Cape Verde particularly is, of course, the fact that so many nationals and citizens live, more of them live abroad than actually in Cape Verde. Mm. So digital really provides here an amazing opportunity to engage with your diaspora and to connect citizens from regardless where they're based. Yes, we have a fantastic diaspora across the world. And we think digital uh, will give us this opportunity of erase this line that uh, separates the Cape Verdeans that live abroad and Cape Verdeans that live in Cabo Verde. We have one nation, the nation of Cabo Verde. Uh, we have second and third generation of Cape Verdeans with startups in, in Boston, with startups in, in Lisbon. And we want to engage with these uh, founders and um, also include them in our ecosystem because we believe that with their expertise, with their network, well, even the, the startups of Cabo Cabo Verde, the ones that are from Cabo Verde, can benefit from it. So I think it's a combination, and Africa should 
invest and support their diaspora. There is a new wave of entrepreneurs that are moved by purpose and they want to be part and to be connected to the land of their parents and grandparents. So we as government, what we want is to make sure that they have an opportunity and include them in our ecosystem. Now, if I'm not mistaken, when you first joined government, you were working with innovation and technical training. This has been, of course, a portfolio that has been building up over the last really decade uh, for the Cape Verdean government. Why? I guess I'm curious in your perspective and opinion on why was that identified as a priority from so early mm. on? And how has that manifested in the last few years as an opportunity for the country? Mm. I think that's a, a fantastic question, because if you think about Cabo Verde, well, with traditional natural resources that are well known in other African countries, countries, we don't have diamonds, we don't have oil, so we always bet on human capital. And so this is something that is really, you want to hear everyone saying in Cabo Verde that the most important thing is human capital. With the world of uh, digital economy and startups, everyone talks about markets uh, and everyone talks about capital. But we believe that what comes first is talent. Resources in this world, that are, they are not well distributed, but luckily talent is. So we need to support talent. We need to train young talent. So then when we talk about an ecosystem, you have strong foundations. So we wanted to start by training people, then uh, to scream the world our goals. We are the tech islands of West Africa, and we want to be a service hub provision for technology in West Africa. And just finally, uh, staying with that point that you just mentioned about being the tech islands of West Africa, you mentioned here in the press conference about being a reference point for the continent and for the region. How is that conversation going with regional partners? And what are some of the ambitions in the short term or the goals of something you might be working on? So we were engaging with different ecosystems. Well, Portugal is uh, one fantastic example uh, of that, but we've been in Rio de Janeiro as well, uh, and we have agreements with ecosystems of, of Rio and other parts of Brazil like Valde Dendeng and Salvador da Bahia. So we are engaging with different ecosystems, with different partners in, in national level like Luxembourg that I mentioned, but as well companies. Microsoft, PricewaterhouseCoopers. So we want to make sure that we achieve our goals. And in order to do that, uh, we need to have strong partnerships. And that's what we're doing. That was Pedro Lopez in conversation with Carlotta Ribello. This is The Daily on Monocle Radio. I'm Andrew Muller. The non-English accents of these islands are routinely celebrated, and rightly so. There is much to appreciate in the Welsh lilt, the Scottish burr, the Irish brogue. But the rich regional accents of England are often neglected, even derided. In recent weeks, boffins from Lancaster University have been examining the reasons for the differences in accent between Burnley and Blackburn, towns barely half an hour's drive apart. We will have more on that shortly, but first, a representative sample of England speaking from the Monocle Newsroom. Hi, I'm Isabella and I'm from Oxfordshire. Now my accent is pretty much a received pronunciation, that being what we understand as a classic British accent. But when I was little and going to the village primary school, I talk a little bit more like this. Hi, my name is Christy O'Grady. I am Monocle's studio director. Um, My accent comes from Hampshire, which is the south of England, uh, aka south of London. And I would say I don't really have an accent, but I guess everyone does have an accent. What I always get asked is, are you Australian? Apparently, even English people think I have an Australian twang. I don't know where it comes from. 
but I did grow up with my nan watching Home and Away and Neighbours every single day, so I don't know, maybe that's it. Hello, my name is Jack Simpson. I am Monocle's Associate Managing Editor and I'm from Brighton. Um, As Tom Edwards, our head of radio, has told me, we don't have an accent. The more I thought about it, the more I think he may be right. But the one thing that will distinguish us as being from Brighton, a proper Brightonian, is that we won't say the T in Brighton. Hi, my name's Monica Lillis and I'm from Somerset. And sometimes when I go home, I slip back into my farmer twang. All right, me babber. That's the preferred greeting, and this is the accent of some people in Bristol. That's the biggest city in the west of England. Although, it's not the only regional accent. If you go just outside Bristol, to Somerset, or to South Gloucestershire, you'll find even more accents there. So having heard that, I can now bring in Steph Chungu and Tom Edwards. And Steph, to you first of all, because it is your accent that is one of the ones that the boffins are studying as they attempt to compare and contrast Burnley and Blackburn. Uh, For the benefit of our international audience, you speak with a Burnley accent, but what is the difference between that and a Blackburn one? I'm going to apologise right now because I can't tell the difference. (laughs) Do you, do you think these boffins are chasing wild linguistic geese? No, I do think there is like there is, there should be a difference. But when I've lived when I've lived in Burnley for so long, and then you just hop to Blackburn and back so many times, you kind of just lose the difference between the accent with years. So I just assume they're just like someone from down the road. But it turns out I'm like 20 minutes away. But Which is kind of down the road. And, and that is the interesting thing, or it's a thing that interests me, Tom, about the rich variety of the English regional accent. And we, to be clear, we are excluding from this conversation Welsh, Scottish uh, and Northern Irish and Irish within the context of these islands. No offence to any of those people. But I, I do think that the varieties of the English accent often get overlooked and they are extraordinary. They are many and varied. And I think what is interesting is how often the language speaks to a deeper set of differences. So there's a there's a kind of an irony, I guess, in the situation that Steph describes, which is that she's not aware of a difference in the accent. And yet, if you said, oh, so people from Burnley and Blackburn care about the same things or have the same preconceptions, I'm quite certain she would say, absolutely not. we're we're like chalk and cheese so it's funny that there is one of the few ways you could actually tell how somebody sounds isn't if you're part of that internecine uh, Lancashire rivalry something that you're aware of it's kind of interesting where would you say your accent ties you to in these (laughs) islands Tom anywhere in particular North London-ish Andrew (laughs) North London-ish yeah yeah, I get... all across North London. Um, <laughs> all, that's all across North London. Uh, just uh, MOR, that's what I am. Do you find, Steph, do people within England tend to make snap judgments about other people within England based on uh, their accent? Are the English all, as Wyndham Lewis once suggested, branded on the tongue? You should ask me when I'm in the office, because half the time you guys are joking about my accent. (laughs) I I still think that... Speaking as an Australian, I catch a fair bit of that myself. (laughs) Um, I still think there is a little bit of a notion about um, 
intelligence or lack thereof, depending on accents. Um, as from the north, we are deemed as a bit um, bit dim, um, basically for our um, intelligence standards, because um, north was basically like the industry, well, the windmill and the, the industry and stuff like that. So there is still a bit of a divide between the north and the south. Um, but um, contrary to popular belief, I will always remain a northerner. Um, so every time that there is a fight between the north and the south, I'm always defending my northern, the northern wall. Because I, I have done some research. Well, I say... Oh, go on, Andrew. I, 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 I say research. I have Googled a few things at random. Uh, I did. I, I discovered a 2021 study by Gala Bingo, and and, and who could argue uh, with their Gala findings? Gala Bingo is the one that's just that little bit older than Oxford University. Right? <laughs> well, indeed. A, a well-respected linguistic institute, Tom. Um they polled on British accents, and the highest-ranked English accent did finish in behind anything from Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland. But do either of you want to take a wild guess as to which it was decided was the most appealing English accent by whoever Gala Bingo asked? Uh, let's have a think. Well, I know there's lots of these uh, usual um, sort of tropes associated with accents that some are friendlier, some are more approachable, some are more authoritative, and so forth. Um, most highly regarded. Is it? Is it a? Is it a northeastern accent, Andrew? It is a northeastern. Oh, it, it, is, it is. It is the Geordie accent. There you uh, go. I love a Geordie accent. It does always poll very high. It, it was the case that uh, call centres uh, were often established in the northeast because people like dealing with Novocastrians because they like their accent, which is indeed uh, an entirely pleasant one. But I, I put it to you, Steph, and. Here, I am borrowing from the, the findings of onbuy.com. Uh, <laughs> never heard of them either. Um, I, I don't know how this is going to land with you, because on the one hand, it does speak fairly highly of the North, but understanding what I do about internecine rivalries within the North, how do you feel about the finding that the most trustworthy English accent is Yorkshire? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a dismissive guffaw? Um. I think we might have lost. We might have lost. Steph, I think, we, I think we've broken Steph. Steph, come back to us. Um, is there is a specific. Pacific Yorkshire accent? Is it Bradford? Is it Leeds? Uh, well, again, now, now we are dancing on the head of a pin, and I am I am aware that within Yorkshire there are various accents and indeed various rivalries, but according to no less an authority than onbuy.com it, and no me neither. It was just the Yorkshire one. I, I mean, I do like a Yorkshire accent. I mean, like, majority of, like, my cousins and stuff, they're, like, in Bradford and my sister's in Leeds. It kind of has, like, a nice lilt to it if you listen to it, you know. <clears throat> and, and I will... I would have taken that comment more seriously had Steph not dissolved into laughter <laughs> mid, at the midway point. Uh, and, and I will put it to you, Tom, principally in the hope of goading you into a career-ending indiscretion. That <laughs> else, Another one! <laughs> else, elsewhere in that same poll, there were quite good numbers for the accents from Newcastle and, surprisingly, and actually Bolton uh, did quite well. Okay. Uh, but... Towards the wooden spoon places, the least trustworthy, least appealing English accents. Do you want to have a guess as, as to what they were? Well, given that this is my heritage, I'm going to say sort of East London, a bit of Cockney, and then probably Essex, the my, the, the benighted county of Essex, somewhere uh, in that ballpark. East London and the benighted county of Essex did feature towards the bottom of oh, the list. But, right, but, slap but bang not, at the bottom. Not slap bang at the oh, bottom. Go on, educate me, Andrew. Um, Liverpool followed by Birmingham. Oh, oh dear. 
Do, do, it's lucky we haven't got any listeners in those markets. <laughs> well, we sure as hell don't now. Uh, Steph Chungu and Tom Edwards, thank you both for joining us. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Finally on today's show, live music from one of the most crucial figures in left-field rock of the last 35 years or so, and I will fight anybody who argues otherwise. Kristen Hirsch has made music in at least three guises, solo with Throwing Muses and with Fifty Foot Wave, and written, among other titles, two fine and funny memoirs chronicling her journey. Kristen visited Midori House recently while touring with her new album, Clear Pond Road, and brought along cellist Pete Harvey. Kristen, welcome back to Monocle Radio. Thank you. Uh, your new album, which we will shortly be hearing uh, one track from, uh, Clear Pond Road, mm-hmm. I was wondering whether you saw it as a sort of three-decade-delayed sequel to your very first solo album, Hips and Makers. It reminded me a lot of Hips and Makers, which I remember reviewing for Melody Maker, God help us both, 31 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And... Oddly, I made a whole record right before this and trashed the whole thing, and there wasn't really anything wrong with it. It just, it wasn't this. Mm. And that's why it was called Clear Pond Road, and that's why that street sign is on the cover, because my little boy and I found that street sign in a junk shop, and we were both just staring at it. Usually you and your little boy aren't enchanted by exactly the same thing. (laughs) So we looked at each other and and realized this is what we were aspiring to, or get out of the erratic heartbeat phase and into the, the steady clear pond. So we carried that sign around with us everywhere we went. And when I thought we had achieved something close, um, the record I had made wasn't that. It was erratic, and I wanted something smooth. I wanted Hips and Makers to leave its thunky mountain viscera and sort of achieve something that was lush and spare at the same time and I guess more mature. And, and and was that the reason for very much foregrounding the cello again, which we will also shortly be hearing? How can you not? <laughs> cello was um, a difficult accompaniment for me on Hips and Makers. I couldn't mic it. I was moving mics everywhere and it always sounded like a horse in a bad way, like a a barrel-chested, rough thing. And I had thought it was a lead bass, and it's not. It's so so rough and scary. And so I wanted wanted to show off that I learned how to work with cello. (laughs) And so I used a baritone acoustic, and the cello, it fills in the gaps, and it also complements the depth. And the highs are then uh, played out in real bell tone instruments like Glockenspiel and mm. also a Nashville tuned guitars. So there's still, it reflects the hips and makers' um, thunkiness. Mountain, not country, you know, the mm. real, like, sort of out of time, little out of tune, something that, sh- that shakes you but sh- that shimmers at the same time. Uh- I just want to go back briefly to the the, the album that wasn't. Um, is, is that something you've ever done before? Made all or most of an album and just thought, nah. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like a waste of money, doesn't it? It is. I have recorded multiple tracks for most of the records I've made, and we probably lose 
from five to 20 <laughs> every record. So I've done something like that, but I have never recorded a realized record, finished it and thought, nah, chuck it in the bin. <laughs> um, and is is it definitely therefore in the bin? Will it never ever see the light of day? Uh, it's it's just fine. It's good. Uh, I don't record most of what I mm. create, and neither does throwing muses or fifty foot wave. We play as if you jump in a river to uh, sort of play with music, and sometimes we record a little bit of that, and sometimes we release a little bit of that. So it isn't, there isn't really a bin to chuck it in. <laughs> it's music. So in my head, it exists, and that's fine. Not being publishable is a different aspect of its character. Uh, you, you cunningly mentioned there the, the two other bands with which you're involved. And, and before we get to the track that you're doing for us today, I, I, I did want to ask... Uh, well, not just what is next, but how you decide what is next, because there is the solo Kristen Hirsch, there are Throwing Muses and Fifty Foot Wave, uh, and there's also quite the burgeoning catalogue of books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I listen. Any time I'm in charge of something, it's lousy. <laughs> or clever, which is lousy to me. I hate clever. <laughs> and so there's always a process of me thinking I know what I want to hear or right and working through the thought process because it's not a thought process it's mm. just a process and once you define the sonic vocabulary on a record or just vocabulary in a book then you're following the work around and listening and watching these like bubbles of moments expand in front of you and you jump into the bubble with the work and you're always trying to catch up you, you shouldn't I don't think reflect your own sensibilities except in that you lived these stories because your your mind's always going to get in the way. Well, finally then, if you would introduce the track you're about to do for us. This is called Ms. Ha Ha, which is a... I, I ripped off a character in a, a Truman Capote story, so I don't know if he can still sue him, people, <laughs> but... <laughs> if he can, he's going to sue me. <laughs> Kristen Hirsch, thank you.
Kristen Hirsch with Pete Harvey on cello right here live at Midori House. Kristen is presently on tour in New Zealand and her new album Clear Pond Road is available now. Kristen was also the subject of episode 157 of Monocle Radio's The Big Interview, which you can find on our website. That is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Steph Chungu, Tom Edwards and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, also to Chris Chermak and Carlotta Ribello. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Dominic Gozo. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. 